And so we continue our journey through the book of Genesis. And to that end, shall we begin in a word of prayer? Our God and Father, may you focus our minds on the things above. Remove distraction from our heart. And ingrain in us a truth that opens our eyes to every moment of our time and our existence. To unfold the doctrine of providence. And to understand that you are not far from us but near. You are not absent from us and you have not abandoned us but you are intimately involved. And that you fight for your people. May we understand these truths. And they are not merely of past history, but established and revealed there. For they are real, and they abide forever, even now. And may it be, then, that you impress these things in our hearts so that our eyes would be open now and tomorrow and for the rest of our lives to know the reality of this God who is with us and this God who acts for us and to love you with all our heart and to trust in you with all our soul. Be honored now. Grant clarity and joy as we study these things you have unveiled. And it is in your name we pray. Amen. As I just mentioned, we are in the middle of a series on Genesis, and this is actually the second to last message that we will do as we survey through the book. By way of review, and it's important for us to get our bearings, the book of Genesis has established the beginning of the plan of God, that God has established who he is, that he is creator and we are not. We are just created. He is the one who has made all things. And the demonstration of his supremacy and the demonstration of his superiority is seen by virtue of his redemption. That nothing can challenge and nothing can ultimately thwart or pervert anything that he has done. That he will have his way in the end. And redemption is the demonstration of that. Genesis 3.15 lays out that plan as God promises to preserve a line, a seed, despite all the odds, and from that line will culminate one seed, the Messiah, that will crush the serpent's head. <clears throat> that is what is going on, and that is God's thesis for a redemptive history. And he has preserved that line through thick and thin, shall we say, reorienting the entire world through the flood and creating nations to restrain evil. And from that rises the need for a nation to affect other nations. That is what takes place. And so that gives rise to the need for the nation of Israel, the nation of Israel. And God begins to entrust to them precious promises, promises like land and seed and blessing that advance the agenda of Genesis 3.15. And along with those precious promises that advance this plan, he gives them truths. (coughs) Excuse me. He gives them truths like faith which is foundational for the nation, that God does everything and man does not. Man merely trusts in the God whose grace accomplishes all. That is the true nature of faith, and we need to understand that. But there is another truth. There is another truth that forms the foundation of Israel that they must announce to the world in addition to faith. 
and that is this truth, and this is found in the next generation after Abraham, and that truth is this, that God is with us and that he fights for us. God is with us and that he fights for us. This is a vital truth. Because we can practically be atheists on a very pragmatic level. Yes, on Sunday, we gather together, we sing songs, we sing the hymns, we read our Bibles. But the rest of the week, all of those notions about God and his working and theology and theological truth, they are jettisoned from our minds. And so we become practical atheists. Yes, we confess that there's a God. Yes, we believe the truth of Scripture. But when it comes to daily living, all of those things are far from us. And because they are far from us, the empty space that is generated thereby, we fill with pagan ideas. We start to talk about things like chance and, oh, that was pretty random, or, oh, that was really lucky for that to happen for them. And so chance and randomness and luck, those pagan ideas start to take over. But really, if you think about it, chance and luck and random things, they're nothing. They're nothing. But in our minds and in our culture's mind particularly, they've been assigned such power that they can do things like this. They can create the world. If you ask somebody, well, how did evolution happen? How did the universe happen? How did the Big Bang occur? They say, it's by chance. It's really lucky. It was random. There's no chance that that happened that way. You know why? Because there is no chance. There's no such thing as chance. That chance and probability and such, in essence, they are nothing. They're not an entity. They have no activity. They have no being. Nevertheless, we think about chance and luck, and we attribute all kinds of things to those things that do not exist, even the power in some people's mind in our culture to create the world, even though it is literally nothing. And so we live our lives unaware, eyes closed to the sovereignty, the providence, the activity of God. And we view God then in a pretty deistic form that he kind of set the world in motion and just disconnected from this planet and he's just out there somewhere and we can just live our lives the way we want. And we like it that way for some of us because if God is just out there and he's not connected with us, not intimately involved, not intimately present, then there's no accountability. Then there's really no real enforceable requirement. And we like living that way, and we kind of believe that way, and we kind of meander in our lives that way until a trial comes. And what do we pray in the trial? Lord, just be with me. It's then that you want God, and you realize how important it is that God is actually present with us, that God is sovereign over us, that God is involved in our affairs, that God is intimately present in our lives. And so what we need to do, what we need to do this evening, and really what the Word of God has a proactive effort of doing, is to eradicate the notion of chance, to eradicate the idea of randomness, to eradicate the concept of luck. 
And so I just want to, by way of introduction to this whole passage, to just give you two quick examples from the Scripture that, that show you how ridiculous this notion is, that, that explain this concept in order to exploit this concept, in order to show you that there is no such thing as those concepts of luck or chance or randomness. For example, and here's the first one, in Ruth chapter 2, verse 2, it says this. It's, it's amazing. It says this, that Ruth, as she's going out from her household, it says she just so happened on the field of Boaz. Now think about this with me. Think about this. Ruth has a choice. She can go to the field on her left, so to speak. Let's say that's Boaz's. Or she can make a right turn and go to a different guy's field. If she goes left, we have redemptive history progressing as normal. Everything will go as we have just seen in the scriptures. And Jesus will come. He will die for our sins. He will rise on the third day. You will get saved. You will be here at Grace Community Church. And ultimately, we will be in heaven one day together. That's if she goes left to the field of Boaz. If she goes right, we're all dead. And you really think she just so happened. It was random. Who knows what would have occurred Really? You think God left that up the chance flip of a coin? No. She just so happened in the, and how? God just took her and said, go this way. And that's where she went. Likewise, there's another book, 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 34. I love this. It says, there was this battle. Ahab has already been declared by God to die in this battle. And it says that even though Jehoshaphat was, was dressed in Ahab's robes, attacked by the enemy, but survived because, of course, God was protecting him. By contrast, Ahab disguised. No one knew who Ahab was. He was dressed like an ordinary soldier. Nevertheless, it says this, that an archer randomly shot an arrow. Now, what does it mean that an archer randomly shot an arrow? Literally in Hebrew, 1 Kings twenty two thirty four, 34, it says this in Hebrew, that he, he shot an arrow in the innocence of his heart. What does that mean? You're innocent in your heart when you shoot the arrow? Let me translate. It means the guy wasn't even trying to aim at anything. He was totally innocent. He was just having fun shooting an arrow. Pew! just enjoying the moment. Why not? You got an extra arrow to use and it just shot. He wasn't aiming for it. He wasn't intending to do anything for it and it just flew. And then the rest of the verse says this, that the arrow hit Ahab, who's disguised. No one knows who he is in the enemy ranks. It hits him between the chain link of his armor. Not only that, right where the corroded artery is over his heart and he bled to death. You think that a guy not aiming just randomly, in the innocence of his heart, lobs an arrow, and it just flies in air. All the wind variables and everything, and just so happens to hit randomly, lucky shot, in between the chain links of his armor, right where the artery is on his heart, so that Ahab would bleed out and die. You know what really happened? In midair, God grabbed the arrow and plunged it into Ahab's heart so that it was executed. That's what happened. Look, when the Bible uses the language of chance, it uses it so that you know there is no chance. When the Bible uses the language of chance, 
It uses it so that you understand there is no such thing. It is all the sovereign will and the sovereign provision and the sovereign guidance of our God. We have to understand something. There is no such thing as chance. Our God is always with us. And for believers, he fights for us. He fights for us. And our eyes need to be open to that. You want your prayer life to change? Realize that God is always with you. You want your walk with the Lord to be constant? Realize that he is always with you. Do you want to worship him and rejoice with him and to see all the wonderful works that he has done? Like the psalmist testify, understand this, he is always with you and he fights for us. And that is the theological truth so essential that is laid out in Genesis, the end of 25, all the way through 36, the, the story of Jacob and the generation of Isaac. That is the truth laid out. And it's so easy to see this. So easy to see this. Let me just give you a statistic. If you take the phrase, with you, like, I will be with you. God is with us. That kind of language. What you have in Genesis 12 through 25, before this passage, It only occurs two times. In Genesis 37 through 50, after this passage, it only occurs one time. In this passage, Genesis, say, 25 through 36, it occurs 11 times. I think the message is clear. Even the contrast of statistics shows you this is the emphasis of this section Every major juncture, chapter 26, I will be with you. Chapter 28, I will be with you. Chapter 31, I will be with you, God says. Chapter 32, I will be with you. That is the message of this section, that our God has not abandoned us, that our God is not a deistic God who just leaves the world and lets it work like clockwork. No, he is with us, and he fights for us, and that is is the message that we must know, and it is fundamental to the nature of our God and our relationship with him. And so I just want to walk you through the life of Jacob a little bit to demonstrate that, and there are about six headings to go through. But throughout this, and and I hope by the grace of God that we can capture it, this section of Genesis is hilarious. It's really funny. And the humor is with a purpose. It's with the purpose of exposing that only God can be at work. You see, Jacob, he's a bumbling guy. He's intentionally, by God's design, really incompetent. And that's what you're supposed to see. You're supposed to see a guy who really thinks he has these great schemes. They don't work at all. You can see right through them. They're really bad. They're designed to fail, except he doesn't know that over and over and over again. But in the end, why do they work? Not because they were good. No, they're not good at all. They're pathetic. But because God redeems. And so what we're going to see over and over is Jacob schemes, but God redeems. Jacob schemes, but God redeems. And in the midst of it all, And as we kind of poke fun at Jacob, the way Moses pokes fun at Jacob, what you start to realize is this, were it not for God, were it not for God. God is the one who makes the decision. God is the deciding factor. He is with us, 
and he fights for us. And so with that, let's see how this pans out. And if you wanna start in Jacob's life, here's where you start. Point one, his birth. His birth, chapter 25, and we'll say starting from verse 19 and following. Chapter 25, verse 19 and following. Everything in these opening verses about Jacob's birth demonstrates God's sovereign presence, God's sovereign intervention. It is his sovereign intervention, for example, that, he, that even Rebekah can conceive. Notice verse 21. Rebekah was barren, the text says. She couldn't have children. And this is actually a very important reality, and it's worth thinking about. You see, throughout the Bible, you might have remembered that there are stories about barren women. You have Sarah. You have Rebekah. You even have Rachel, you have Samson's mother, you have Samuel's mother. You have a lot of different women who have difficulty having children. And then it says this, that they conceive and gave birth. God intervened, and the person that they gave birth to was a significant figure in redemptive history, in God's plan. You have people like Jacob, you have people like Samuel, you have people like Samson. Now, why does God do that? Because he's showing how his plan of Genesis 3.15, that the woman will have a seed and that the line of the seed will be preserved, he is showing his divine intervention in that and driving that plan deliberately, conscientiously, visibly, step by step forward. That's what's going on. But don't miss this. Don't miss this. In part, and I stress that, in part, think about this with me. What tops a barren woman giving birth, a virgin woman giving birth. And listen to the prophecy of Isaiah seven fourteen. It says this, the virgin will conceive and bear a son. The same kind of language here. Notice verse 21 of chapter 25. So Rebecca, his wife, conceived. You can even hear the similarity of structure. And if and since God and intervenes in the lives of barren women, enabling him to give birth to children who have significant roles in redemptive history, then you know if he intervenes in the greatest way in a woman who is a virgin, then that child is the most significant individual of all history. And that is exactly the case. And in part, the virgin birth accentuates not only that Jesus is God, man, amen, and amen, but that his role is the most pivotal role of all time for all time. Even his birth demonstrates that. And all that to say is this, God has to intervene. God demonstrates his intervention. God is sovereign here. He hasn't left the world. He is there. It's accentuated by the fact in Genesis 25, 21, that Isaac entreated Yahweh on behalf of his wife, and Yahweh was moved by his entreaty. You know that God has to be involved. They're depending on him to be involved. And on top of that, this is a massive moment, and you can see the sovereignty of God apart from anyone. Why? Because this that happens in the womb is so powerful, it predestines the fate of nations. Verse 23, two nations are in your womb, Yahweh says. Two people will be separated from your body, and one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. We know that prophecy. And one moment, God is so sovereign, he intervenes in a barren woman's life, allowing for twins to come about, and he predestines those twins for the fate, not just of themselves, but nations. 
That's how sovereign and involved he is in a singular moment. Now, we know the older shall serve the younger. The twins didn't get the memo. And how do you know that? Because one twin came out, he was hairy and red, named Esau, and Jacob is the next one. Why is he called Jacob? Because he's grabbing at Esau's heel. Why was he grabbing at Esau's heel? To push him out first? No. Presumably, he was grabbing Esau's heel because he was trying to get out before Esau. Jacob already was scheming in the womb. And he thought, I got a great plan. I got a great scheme. I'll grab the guy's foot, and that will help me to get out first. Not realizing that anatomically, that's not going to help you whatsoever. But the irony is this. If Jacob's scheme had worked, the older shall serve the younger. It would have backfired on him. So by his scheme not working, it actually worked. And that's the point. Jacob schemes, but God what? Redeems. And what you have here is the highest clarity of God's intervention. It's intervening in a barren woman's life. It's intervening before nations are even formed. When you have twins in the womb. It's even intervening with twins. Which by all token, twins are basically the same. They look very similar. It reminds me of this one situation. I was watching a YouTube video and they had this comedy troupe. And the comedy troupe included twins. And one of the twins got injured. And the way they tried to compensate for that is they just filmed the whole clip with the other twin. So that no one would know the difference. And they got away with it. It was amazing. Twins are basically the same. So what distinguishes them? Who distinguishes them? Who decides who's better or or worse? Or what faith they will have? It can't be them. They're basically equal. All of this demonstrates with the highest clarity, God is the decider. God is the decider. God is the one who intervenes. Even at birth, God was always intervening. Jacob schemed. But God redeemed. God redeemed. And it's not just in the birth in chapter 25. It's with the birthright. This is the second point. It is with the birthright. Look at Genesis chapter 25, verse 27 to the end of the chapter. Meet the scheming family. It runs in families. Yes, it does. Chapter 25, verse 27. Here is the partiality. Esau was a skillful hunter. And Isaac loved Esau. But Jacob was a peaceful man, and Rebekah loved Jacob. This is the classic house divided. You know that there's going to be problems. There's partiality here, and they're all scheming, and they all have the ability to have an agenda. We know that. That's what's going on. Now, within this, we know that Jacob was cooking a stew. Esau comes from the field, and he wants, he's just so hungry, he wants to sell and is willing to sell his birthright. You say, what is a birthright? The birthright is your position in the family. It is the responsibility of caring for your family and fulfilling the role for your family and completing the destiny and the role and the function of the family in history. And Esau doesn't want that responsibility. He doesn't care about it. And so he just gives it up for a pot of stew. The guy, as it says in verse 34, he despised his birthright, but Jacob's no better. How did Jacob obtain the birthright? By what? Scheming. By scheming. 
And giving up the birthright is serious, particularly in this case, because the birthright, which deals with the role and responsibility and the function of this family in history, pertains not just to societal role, but to God's role for the people. And here in chapter 26, we realize what Esau rejected. We realize what Esau despised. God said, I will be with you. That's what he rejected. He rejected chapter 26, verse 3. He rejected God's presence. Verse 3, again, I will bless you. He rejected God's blessing. He rejected God's protection. Verse 6 and following of chapter 26 The way that God protected Abraham is the way that he would protect Isaac. Esau rejected all of that. Esau rejected how God would use this people and bless this people with prosperity. It even says in verse 12 that Isaac sowed in the land and reaped in the same year 100-fold. That's a good investment. You put in a dollar, you get $100 back. No one thinks that's a bad move. Isaac had that by the providence of God. And Esau, though, rejected it because he rejected the birthright. He rejected the fact that God prospered Isaac and and prospered and promised to prosper his people to the point where even in verse 26 of chapter 26, there's covenants made with these individuals as all the nations are respecting and being blessed by these people. And so Esau despised his birthright. He hated it, verse 34, because he took even a wife from the Hittites And that brought bitterness to Isaac and Rebekah. He despised the birthright. He despised all that God had entrusted to this family to continue the legacy of Genesis 3.15 and that plan with all of its promises and all of its theology. He despised it. So he's out. He's out. You know this is not the one who is in the line of the seed. He's rejected that position in the providence of God. But Jacob is no better in this sense. Jacob's a schemer. That's all they do is scheme. And you're going to see kind of the culmination of that scheme in chapter 27. Everyone's scheming. Everyone's scheming. Isaac, though he knows the older should serve the younger, he schemes. He tells Esau, get some, get, go out and go hunting, make me a dish, and I'll give you the blessing. He's scheming, and he's not the only one. Notice verse 5 of chapter 27. Rebekah was listening while Isaac was speaking to his son. You can play at this game. And Rebecca calls in Jacob and says, now you need to do what I say. You need to listen to my voice. Go get to the flock, get me two choice young goats and, and bring them to me. And Jacob, you know, out of all the schemers of the family, Jacob's the worst schemer. He doesn't even know how to scheme. He has to ask his mother, uh, mom, how do we handle this situation? Esau, my brother, is a hairy man, and I'm a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me. What are we going to do? I have no idea. I don't know how to scheme. Teach me your ways. You know, that's what he's kind of saying at this time in chapter 27. And, And his mother has to do everything for him. His mother has to do everything for him. And she's good at that. Remember from last week, she's bionic woman. She's the one who can run back and forth a hundred times or more to water the camels. She knows how to work hard. She knows how to be diligent, and she knows how to scheme, and she's got this made. So she's, everyone's scheming. Isaac is scheming. Esau goes out to hunt. He's scheming. Rebecca is most definitely scheming, and she does everything. She does everything. Chapter 27, verse 14, she has the best timing. She, she gets everything together. And then verses 15 and 16, she puts on the best disguise, put on Esau's clothes, put hairy garments on his arms so that 
the father, when he feels him and touches him, he'll think it's Esau. And then in verse 17, she also knows the best way to prepare the food so that Isaac will be placated and give everything. Everything seems to be thought of. You have touch, you have taste, you have smell, you have sight, you have everything. Except one. Verse 22. Jacob came near to his father and the father said, wait, we have a problem. What problem could there be? You have every sense covered, right? No, you didn't have one. Isaac says, who's there? It's Jacob. I mean, Esau. Wait, did you say you were Jacob or Esau? Esau, dad, Esau. Verse 22, the voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. They thought of everything but one thing, and it could have been a fatal flaw in the plan. In fact, if Isaac was really, really thinking, it's easy to fake garments. It's hard to fake your voice, especially when you have a slip up like that. Why would Esau speak in a high-pitched voice? That makes no sense whatsoever. But, but Isaac buys it. Despite how irrational it is, Isaac buys it. Why? Because of family schemes. But God what? Redeems. And Isaac gives not only the birthright, but also the blessing to Jacob. And he gives him everything just like God prophesied, just like God ordained. The older will serve the younger. We know that. And God's prophecy fulfills. God wins. In this deal, God wins. Guess what happens to everyone else? They lose. Isaac loses. His scheme fails. Esau loses. He says, bless me, Father. Bless me indeed. The Father really has no blessing left. He loses. Rebekah loses. She says to Jacob, If this scheme fails, let the curse be on me. It was. That would be the last time she sees her son for the rest of her life. She lost. Jacob loses. You say, how so? He has to run away from home because now he has a brother who wants to kill him. So the only one who won is who? God. And there is not just with the highest clarity that you see that God redeems, it's the highest contrast because when every single human being schemes and every single human being has a plan and you even have bionic woman running back and forth and doing everything and it seems like every contingency is taken care of and we've minimized risk and all this kind of stuff and they all lose and the only one who wins is God. It's obvious who is in control, who is the deciding factor. It's not man, so it must be God. God is the one who wins. And that's what we learn in chapter 27. We not only saw in chapter 25 that God has the highest clarity in this, in verses 27, of cha- or chapter 27 rather, we have the highest contrast that proves the same truth. God is working out the destiny of this world every step of the way. Well, so you have the birth, then you have the birthright, And now the story progresses as Jacob is running away from home and he reaches a place called Bethel. And this is point three. Birth, birthright, Bethel. Chapter 28. 
If you haven't been able to learn the lesson that God is the one involved and that God is the one who redeems and that God is with us, and Jacob seems not to have been able to understand this lesson, God makes it clear. God makes it clear in chapter 28. Chapter 28, Jacob is on the run, running away from a brother who's irate, who's murderous in his intent. And in this chapter, Jacob chapter 28, verse 10, he lays down for the night and he has a dream. He has a dream. And he dreams of a ladder between earth and heaven with angels going up and down. And there is a message right there, an important message that heaven is not disconnected from earth and that heaven is not absent from the affairs of man, and that God, he is proactively working, even sending angels to drive the affairs of men. He does not just wind up a clock and leave it. He does not just leave man to be on his own whims and desires. No, he is connected with what is happening, and he is driving what is happening. That is what this dream proclaims, that God is with us. And just to accentuate how clear this is and the theology of it, in chapter 28, verse 15, this is what God says. Behold, I am with you. That's what God says. I am with you. That's the meaning of this dream. I will keep you wherever you go. I am with you. I will not forsake you. That is what God declares. That's the meaning of this dream. Heaven is not disconnected from earth. And so this is what Jacob does when he awakes. He names the place Bethel. Bethel. Bethel means house of God. House of God. And at this moment, you have a theology laid down. Why do you have a temple? Why do you have a tabernacle? Why do you have these houses of God, so to speak, this house of God? Why? Because it's a declaration continuously. Our God has not forsaken us. Our God is not just in heaven. Our God did not disconnect from us. Our God did not abandon us. Our God is with us, with us every step of the way. When the things went wrong in this world, he did not just set the world on its own course and say, that's it, I don't wanna have anything to do with you anymore. No, he clung to this world and he is with us through it all. That is why there's a temple. That is why there's a tabernacle. And after all, the church is even called the temple of God, the people of the church. Our presence together is a constant reminder to this world, our God is here. Our God has not abandoned us. Why do we have baptisms? Why do we do what we do? It is to announce from the rooftop every Sunday when we gather together, our God is real. He is here. He is active. He is present. And he fights for us. That is what is announced. And particularly in the church, this reaches a culminating point because here is the reality. What is the ultimate expression? What is the ultimate expression of the fact that God is with us? Do you not remember what our Lord's name is? A virgin will conceive and you will call his name the son born, what? Emmanuel, which means God with us. And what does it say in John chapter one? What does Jesus relate to Nathaniel? You will one day see heaven open and angels going up and down on the son of man. That is a direct 
allusion back to this. Who is the ladder that connects heaven and earth? Who is the ultimate expression that God is with us? Who is the one who demonstrates that God has not abandoned us and he is with us and he is active and he is fighting for us? The ultimate expression of that is the son of God. Why? Because he is with us and he came to be with us and he lived with us and he redeemed us. Jacob schemes, but God redeems. And what we see here with the nature of God's presence with us sets an entire trajectory to Christ, to Christ. God will redeem, even from the book of Genesis, because he is with us and he is committed to be with us to the point that he has ordained the incarnation. But that doesn't change the fact that Jacob's a schemer. He has this amazing dream, hears these amazing promises, understands that God is not just somewhere out there and he's just gonna have to make it on his own. No, God is with him every step of the way and he can depend on him, but he still schemes. I love this, it's hilarious. Verse 20, look at it with me, chapter 28. Here's what Jacob says. After realizing that God is with him, he says this, Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me on this journey on which I'm going and will give me food to eat and garments to wear and I return to my father's house in peace, then Yahweh will be my God. What a privilege for God to get Jacob. What a bargain. You keep your end of the bargain, God, and you can have me because I'm all that. What kind of negotiation is that? It's a pathetic negotiation. Jacob schemes, but God redeems. That's what we have to understand. Jacob schemes, but God redeems. We know with the highest clarity, by the highest contrast, and ultimately in Christ, that God is with us. God is with us. And the story continues. You have Jacob's birth. You have the birthright. Now you have Bethel. And here we are in chapter 29, chapter 29 and following. And this is what I titled Bethuel, Bethuel. It's like Bethel, but with a U, Bethuel. And you say, what is that? That's where Jacob meets Laban. That's the home of Laban, Jacob's uncle. And at this moment, Jacob is going to meet a real schemer. That's Laban. Laban is the real deal. If you haven't caught already, Jacob can't scheme anything. Even in his own family, he was the worst schemer. Now he's going to meet a real one. And just to really emphasize that Jacob can't scheme anything, he's introduced in the opening chapters, I love this, to the shepherds. And he tries to convince them to do anything and have a conversation from, with them. I, this is hilarious in Hebrew. Genesis 20, 29, verse 4. Jacob speaks all these words. My brothers, where are you from? And while in English we have to kind of make complete sentences, in Hebrew there's no complete sentence. They just say, Aaron. They don't want to have a conversation. Jacob's like, oh, well, do you know, the, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And then they say this, we know. They don't even bother to say him. They don't even bother to have a complete sentence, a complete thought. They don't want to talk to this guy. And Jacob's trying to really strike a conversation. And Jacob says, is it at peace with him? Is there shalom with him? And the shepherds there say, shalom. That's it. They don't want to talk with this guy. And Jacob can't get a word out of them edgewise. No one can get a word out of them edgewise until the end of verse six. And then they start talking. 
there's Rachel, his daughter, coming with the sheep. All guys are the same. Look, they don't start talking until they see a beautiful lady coming. And Jacob just starts to urge them to move their sheep, and they're just giving them really dumb excuses why they can't. Well, it's not the right time. There's too many sheep. We're too lazy. And Jacob just, you know, he doesn't know what to do. And he gets overwhelmed, and he even kisses Rachel. This is just crazy. He doesn't know. He's a schemer who's a bad schemer. He can't motivate even shepherds to do anything. That's how bad he is. So then he meets Laban, the real schemer. The incompetent one means the ultra-competent one. And Laban says, I got an idea, because he can read Jacob. This guy is so gullible. This guy can be worked over. This guy can be totally manipulated. So Laban says, work for me for seven years, and you can have Rachel. And he works for him for seven years, and it says, because he was so in love, it was like a day. Oh, sweet. Until, (laughs) Until the guy gets married. And then Laban doesn't give him Rachel. He gives him who? Leah. And Jacob's like, what? How'd that happen? Jacob, how could you not check? (laughs) Schemer, not a schemer. And Laban says, oh, it's our practice. Didn't you know this? You were with me for seven years. We don't give the younger before the older. You should know that. And so Laban says, I have an idea. I have an idea. I know. Why don't you just work for me for another seven years? Good deal, right? Buy one, get one free. <laughs> and, and here's the maniacal plan of Laban. It isn't, let's be clear, work for another seven years, then you can marry Rachel. Verse 27, fulfill the week of this one, fulfill the week of Leah, and we will give you also the service which you shall serve me for the other seven years. Wait a minute. Why does he say just fulfill the week of this one? He can marry Rachel after one week. You say, why does he do that? Because the wedding lasted for what? One week. Now, ladies, think about this with me. Just be rational. If you married the love of your life, and then the next day after your wedding, he married someone else, what would you do to that guy? It doesn't take rocket science to figure out what Laban is doing. He wants to cause such dissension in this family, such disunity, such anger, such hurt, that the family will dissolve and scatter and implode, and therefore he can get the free labor out of Jacob and get everything back. Laban is a master schemer. And you know who can't see through this? Jacob. He says, great idea. Let's do it. Doesn't even realize he's playing into the clutches of a diabolical plot. Jacob schemes, but God what? Redeems. Instead of the family imploding, instead of the family falling apart, guess what happens? Because of competition, because God loves the unloved woman, which is a tale all of it in and of itself, so beautiful and so wonderful. All of that happens is this, that the family explodes in a great way. Child after child after child, 12 sons and one daughter. Jacob's scheme, but God what? Redeemed. And we know that. And it wasn't even just 
relative to his progeny, but even to his property, that there was an explosion of growth. We know that in the next round, Laban says, hey, well, now that the next year's set of contract is up, let's do it again. Uh, But I don't have any more daughters to give you, so why don't you pick your new wages? And so Jacob comes up with this great idea. How about you give me all the speckled and spotted sheep? Laban says, great, you can have all the speckled and spotted sheep. And then he gives them all the pure white sheep. So that there's no possibility that he could have anything speckled or spotted. Laban's a schemer. Jacob just doesn't know how to negotiate whatsoever. And so Jacob says, I I know how to counter this. I know how to counter this. While they're at the watering hole, I'll put these strips of bark by them. And that will produce spotted and speckled sheep. And if you have a degree in genetics, or if you don't, you realize that just doesn't work. And you might think, oh, I know, though. Maybe back in those days, the ancient Near Easterns thought that that was a spectacular tactic, a very good guru strategy for how to have speckled sheep if you wanted it. How-to manual. Well, you know, it's funny. They have one of those. And we, in the providence of God, it's been preserved. And you know what it says this? It says this, quote, Only a fool thinks that putting bark by water could produce speckled sheep. Even then they knew it didn't work. And here's Jacob, stripping the bark and thinking he's got it made. Jacob schemes, but God what? Redeems. The only reason there were speckled and spotted sheep is because of who? God. God ordained. God redeemed the situation. God transformed. And in fact, all those sheep turned out to be the strongest sheep. If you want just another lesson of how this works with just such clarity. After all this happens, Jacob kind of realizes, I think, (laughs) this is hilarious. He tells his wives, he says, I think your father doesn't like me. (laughs) Took you long enough, buddy. (laughs) And he's changed my wages 10 times. No kidding. And he says, I think we should leave. And they all agree. And God even calls him to leave. And in chapter 31, God says, verse 3, I will be with you. Hear that again? I will be with you. That's the only reason why this works. And it certainly is necessary because, again, Jacob schemes, but God redeems. Jacob, he runs, he, he has the right idea. He has to leave. But the way he does it is totally foolish. He just, without any warning, takes all of his wives and children and family and flock out. Well, you know what that looks like from an ancient Near Eastern perspective. You just kidnap them all. And you do know what the penalty for kidnapping is. It's death. And you do know that how could a family of that size and of that youthfulness outrun Laban, who it says in verse 22, took his relatives not children, but family members, formed a group that was military in nature and was chasing them down. How do you think you can outrun an army? You know, the kids are like, pretty butterfly. Hurry up, hurry up, we gotta go. You can't outrun an army that way. What in your mind possessed you to think this way? He wasn't gonna live. However, notice verse 24, God came to Laban, the Aramean, in a dream of the night and said to him, Beware lest you speak to Jacob, either good or bad. The only reason why Jacob survives, not because he schemes, but because God, what? Redeems. 
That's it. That's it. And God allows Jacob to escape the ultimate schemer, Laban. They form a boundary division between the two of them. And God shows He's not only showing his sovereignty and providence with clarity or by contrast or in Christ. He shows it by conquering the enemy, by conquering a foe that Jacob could never conquer, that is Laban. Well, you have the birth, you have birthright, you have Bethel, you have Bethuel, and now Jacob's gone from Laban and he's back home and now he has to deal with his brother, and that's point five, brother. And there is such a clear demonstration, chapter 32, verse 1 and following, that God is with him. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And Jacob saw them and and said, this is God's camp. And that's why he named the place Machanaim. That's why he did it, because he knew that God was with him. But how often is it that you just can't learn the lesson, and he forgot. He knows his brother's coming, and he just takes desperate measures. And again, it's truly Jacob's schemes, but God redeems. Jacob, verse 7 of chapter 32, was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people with him in two camps, and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two camps. And he said this, if Ephah comes to the one camp and strikes it, then the other camp which remains will escape. Brilliant plan. You already set yourself up for just 50% survival. How is that a good plan? And really, if he took out one camp, why can't he take out the other one? So you've really set yourself for 0% survival. Wonderful, wonderful job. But then he does something good. Verse 9, he prays. That's good. He prays. But immediately after he prays, verse 13, he sends a bribe. So much for prayer. And he, he thinks he schemes this whole bribe up. And at the end of reflecting on everything, I love this. Verse 20, he says this. Then afterwards, I will see his, that is Esau's face. And here's the operative word perhaps he will lift up my face. Notice the opening word. Perhaps, even Jacob, it's dawning on him. This scheme probably won't work either. Even now he knows how bad this idea is. So here's what happens in the end. Um, He just isolates his own family away from the rest of the camp and crosses the river. Do you realize how vulnerable of a position that puts his family in? You just sent away the security guards. Why would you do that? Jacob doesn't know what to do. He's at his wit's end. And at this moment, verse 24, Jacob was left alone, chapter 32, and it says this, a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the dawn. You say, why is a man wrestling with him? Let me tell you something in Hebrew. The word Jacob in Hebrew is Yaakov. The word in Hebrew for wrestle is Yaakov. 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 Everyone hear the similarity? Jacob was Jacobing with God. Jacob was Jacobing. He was being Jacob with God. His whole life has been a wrestling match where he's tried to do all kinds of schemes. Wrestling has kind of a tricky, deceptive nature to it. You fake people out. You try to get people in holds. That's what you hypothetically do if you're good. Jacob never was good, so he never could have it. And he just kept wrestling, but he thinks he's good. And so he saw that he had not prevailed against him, so here's what happens. He thinks he's good, and then the angel, actually the pre-incarnate Christ, all he has to do is one thing, touch his hip, and boom, he's out. What is the lesson? It's clear. You thought you were so tricky. 
You thought you were a great schemer. You thought you could just wrestle. You thought you were prevailing. But all God has to do is just one thing, and it doesn't work. Or it does. That's it. Jacob, you can't do anything at all. And once Jacob learns the lesson, I love this. Verse 27, he says, God says to him, what is your name? And he's not just doing a pop quiz. Fill out your name here. He's saying, what is your character? And Jacob says, I'm Jacob. I'm a schemer. I'm the one who grabs the heel. I'm the one who manipulates. That's all I am. I'm a manipulator. And God says, finally, you get something. But here's what I'll give you. This is your new name, Israel. And you know what the name Israel means? God fights for you. That's what it means. Because that's the story of Jacob's life. Jacob schemed, but God what? Redeemed. And God gave him this new name to demonstrate not only what is true about everything, that God, how does redemption happen? God is here every step of the way. And he's not just here doing random things. He is here fighting for his people. Despite of themselves, he is driving everything forward. And that not only became Jacob's name, that became the nation of Israel's name because that is what they are supposed to declare from the rooftops. We are Israel. God fights for us. He is here. He is with us. He turns evil to good. He fights for us. That is the story of Jacob. And that is the story of Israel. And we see that with clarity in chapter 33. You know, Jacob still doesn't get it. He still doesn't get it. He's still a schemer. He lines up his children. This is just crazy to think about. He lines up his children so that the ones of his two servant women are first and then Leah and then Rachel. It's pure favoritism. Can you imagine a child in a counseling session after this? Why do you think your dad doesn't like you? Well, because when we were marching to the uncle that he thought was going to kill us, he put me in the front of the line. (laughs) What a schemer. Doesn't get it. But God redeems. God redeems. And Esau loves. Why? Because he has to. Why? Because God fights for his people. That's why. But Jacob still doesn't get it. So in chapter 34, God has to convict him through a very hard lesson. Jacob's daughter, Dinah, is raped. And Jacob does nothing. It's unimaginable. The travesty that is. He does nothing. Why? Because he's a schemer. And he's using this to try to secure for himself financial advantage. Well, his sons, they've learned from the worst. They're schemers too. And they come up with a counter scheme to trick the city of Shechem to an agreement whereby the city of Shechem will circumcise itself. And when the pain was greatest on the third day, two sons, Simeon and Levi, massacre the entire city. And you think, at least when the problem, so to speak, is resolved, that Jacob would just say nothing or even slightly commend his sons. But Jacob gets mad. Jacob gets upset at his sons and says, you've made me odious among the inhabitants of the land. Why are you doing this? And they say one thing to him. Should he treat our sister as a harlot? That's what you've done to your own daughter. Because you're a schemer. 
And at that moment, God has convicted Jacob of his wickedness as a schemer. And at that moment, chapter 35, God says, arise, go to Bethel and live there. He's convicted, that is God has convicted Jacob of his sin, and he has reminded Jacob, you did make an oath to me. I know, it was a pretty harebrained scheme that I could get you, but I'll take you up on the offer. I kept you all the way. I did what I was supposed to do. It's your turn. Come back to me. Go to Bethel. And here's what's amazing, and this is kind of the final point, Bethel part two. Bethel part two. We've had the birth. We've had birthright. We've had Bethel part one. We've had Bethuel. We've had brother, and we have Bethel part two, and this is where it all concludes. Here's what Jacob says to his household and to everyone who is with him. Put away the foreign gods. Cut off your life of idolatry. Cleanse yourself from your sin. Get rid of your iniquity. This is full on repentance. Change your garments. Why? Because now you will have a new identity, a new association, a new relationship, and a new life. Change everything. And at this moment, Jacob has changed from a man who was a schemer and a manipulator, one who was still syncretistic in his mentality, idolatrous at heart, to a man who said there is only one God. And this is what he says, and I love this, and you should see the power of it. He says, let us arise, go to Bethel. I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress and listened to this and has been with me. Wherever I have gone, did Jacob finally learn the lesson? And the answer is yes. He realized God is with me. Jacob schemes, but God what? Redeems. And it's not just that he redeems. He redeemed Jacob. That's what you learn in the end. He redeemed the schemer. And that is the greatest redemption of all, the redemption of the soul of one person. And he, that is God, reinforces, that's why your name is no longer going to be called Jacob. It will be called what? Israel. Because I fought and I won. And I fought not only in your life, I fought for your life. And I bought you to myself so that the line of the seed would continue. God fights. He fights with clarity. He fights by contrast. He fights in conquest. He fights in calling. And he fights, as we see here, in conversion, the conversion of his own. That's what he does. This mantra that Yahweh fights for us, it runs throughout the entire Old Testament. Exodus 14 at the Red Sea. See the salvation of our God. He fights for us. It's found in the days of Hezekiah. God will fight for us. Second Chronicles 32 verse 8. It's found in the prophets. It's found in Nehemiah. Our God will fight for us. He will rebuild the wall. It's seen in the book of Revelation that God fights for us. This is a theme that goes throughout scripture and that is why it all is laid out here and it starts and is grounded and founded here in Genesis because that is the truth. That is the battery that operates and drives all redemptive history that our God has not abandoned us and that he fights for us and that he's with us every step of the way. That's why redemption can happen. Now, by way of epilogue, having said all of this and having seen this truth, you have a list in chapters 35 and 36 of the sons of Jacob and Israel. You ask why? After all that is laid out and after the conversion of Jacob, why? Because we know the line of the seed runs through Jacob. God has fought for that and he has won that. 
But now we have to ask the question, he's got 12 sons, which one? Which one will be continuing the line of the seed? Well, that's the question for next week. But we have to emphasize this, that the only reason we could ever get to this point is not because of man at all. Not because Jacob was smart. It was because God redeemed, even though Jacob what? Schemed. That's what we learn. Brothers and sisters, stop talking about chance. Stop talking about luck. Stop talking about randomness. Open your eyes to the God who is with us every step of the way. Trust him for every single step. Why? Because he's involved. Our God is not gone. Heaven is not disconnected from earth. He is with us. And may it be that our eyes are opened to the God who keeps every promise because our God fights for us. Shall we pray? Our God and Father, thank you for this wonderful truth, vividly illustrated over and over again, that though we may scheme and we may think the battle is in our hands and that the strength may be in the horse, no, it is all you. It is all in your hands. You redeem, and you have even redeemed us. You fight for us, though we don't deserve it. This is your sovereign grace. And may we trust in you with all our heart, pray to you without ceasing, knowing that you are without ceasing operating even in our lives through providence, constantly upholding us and even this world by the power of your hand and your word. May we give all the glory to you and may our relationship with you be constant for you are with us. And we pray all this for the glory of your name in which we pray, amen.